anniversaries have a tendency to spark a spectrum of emotions, and today is no exception. One year ago today, a gunman opened fire on a crowd of people attending the Route 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas, injuring hundreds and killing 58. This horrible incident happened in my city, and in the hours and weeks after the incident occurred, stories of those impacted began pouring in. Today's episode originally aired on March 14th, 2018, and is one man's story of action, survival, heroism, grief, regret, and recovery. We dedicate today's show to everyone whose lives this tragedy has touched. Those who were lost, their families, friends, first responders, doctors, nurses, the way the people of Las Vegas came together, and the list goes on and on. Take time today for a moment of remembrance and don't forget self-care. And with that, we welcome you to the Leadership Looks Like podcast. Join us as we explore personal stories of leaders who are making an incredible impact in their businesses, lives, and communities. Get ready to be inspired, see things from a new perspective, and learn new tools to help overcome challenges. This is what leadership looks like. Travis, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's nice to have you in on the podcast. I am so excited to talk to you um, because you are a firefighter yep. here in Las Vegas. Yes, ma'am. And you are in the grind most days here helping the community. Yep. Yeah, um, <clears throat> so I've been a, uh, uh, right now I'm a fire engineer for the Clark County Fire Department. Uh, I was a firefighter for about seven years now. Um, and, uh, I've spent most of my time at, uh, station 15, which is in Chinatown as a fireman, uh, promoted out of there and spent a lot of time at station 33, which is kind of right by sunrise hospital. Um, and then just recently I bid over to station 11, which is on the South strip. Uh, it's right across the street from the welcome to Las Vegas sign. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'm really excited to be there. It's kind of different seeing different set of calls and you get, you know, in other places. So it's yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah. How long have you lived in Vegas? I was born and raised here in Las Vegas, so 31 years. 31 years. Yep. <laughs> what made you decide to be a firefighter? Um, when I was uh, in ninth grade, 9-11 happened. Uh, I remember watching it on TV, and uh, you know, I'm sure anybody that was in school that day, was just all we did was watch TV from no matter what class you're in. And I remember watching uh, all the firemen running in and, and uh, the sheer panic on people's faces running out of the tower. And I was like, boy, like I really want to be the guy that knows what to do in a scene like that because no, who knows, you know, like yeah. who could ever imagine something like that happening or preparing any way for that. So I saw those guys, uh, working and doing what they do, uh, that day. And I was like, boy, that'd be really cool to do that and know what to do. And then, uh, weeks, months, years after that, you see, uh, the pride that FDNY has, you know, and, um, I was like, yeah, that's the brotherhood that I really want to be a part of. And you knew right then and there. So you- I did, uh, I was, uh, I was so hell bent on being a history teacher at the time. I freaking just, I loved my history teacher in, in high school. Um, he was actually my best friend's father growing up. And, uh, I was like, Oh, this would be so great. I can coach soccer. I can, you know, do this history thing. It'll be awesome. And, uh, and then this fire department thing comes rolling around. I'm like, oh, boy, now I'm not really too sure. Uh, once I got out of high school, I knew 
first semester of college, I was like, yeah, I need to be a part of the fire department. I was fortunate enough. Uh, the Henderson fire department has an explorer program mm-hmm. and, uh, I lived in Henderson at the time. Uh, they were doing a recruitment. So I went and, uh, asked them, Hey, what do I need to do to get, to be a part of this? You know, I'm just 18 year old kid. I don't know anything. And they're like, yep, you're exactly what we're looking for. That's kind of what they want. They want uh, to kind of steer people in the right direction, mentor them. And that's exactly what they did. They told me what college classes to take, who the good teachers were. Um, uh, really just every step I needed to take to, uh, help me, uh, get hired on a fire department. Um, and so that's what I did. I tested for, I mean, I tested for <laughs> all the fire departments here in town, mm-hmm. LA city, LA County, Orlando, in North Carolina. I was just like, I didn't care where I just wanted to have a shirt that said firefighter on it. Um, and uh, I got lucky enough to get hired right out of college to do wildland firefighting. Mm-hmm. So I did wildland firefighting for three seasons uh, with Lake Mean Fire Department. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people don't realize Lake Mean Fire Department, they uh, uh, respond. They're generally were available nationally. So we'll go to California, Idaho, Montana, where, wherever the, they need us. Um, and then they also have all the land, all the plateaus that are uh, by the Grand Canyon. That's all Lake Mead land too. So we had a pretty busy, few pretty busy fire seasons. And I got to learn a lot uh, about firefighting, a lot about tactics, a lot about leadership. You know, we're on a fire with thousands of firefighters trying to accomplish the same goal, just put the fire out or not let it get any bigger. Um, uh, so I was really fortunate. I really, I've just lucked out. Like I feel like my whole life, I just lucked into the explorer program i kind of lucked into this uh wildland uh game and uh after my third season they had offered me a full-time job with them i was just seasonal at the time and, and that was out at lake mead yep okay out at lake mead they offered me a full-time job in the off seasons i was working at amr doing the uh, emt thing and i was like yeah of course <laughs> this is what i want to do and um, a couple weeks later, Clark County called me and like, Hey, you're moving on in our process. You know, congratulations. We'd like you to come down and fill out some paperwork. And I was like, Oh boy. <laughs> so I called my chief and I'm like, Hey, sorry. Like, this is my dream job. You know, I, I can't pass this up. And he's like, I, I understand. So, uh, continuing on in that process, got lucky again and, uh, was in an academy. Next thing I knew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you keep, you, you point out that you were lucky, but, um, let's highlight, very quickly. So you, you seeked out the Explorer program, mm-hmm. which, which helped you along. It helped you really figure out how to get hired, you know, on, on the fire department. Right. Right. I, I, maybe I have like a little bit def- different definition of luck. I think I just like teeing yourself up to, uh, to let luck strike. Right. So right. like, I know I'm not going to get an interview unless I'm an EMT. So I have to go get that. And then luckily I get in, you know, I get this interview and, uh, I know I can't uh, be an explorer unless I put forth all this effort into you know interviewing, working out, uh, maintaining like the right image and stuff. So it's I think that's what it is for me is just kind of teeing yourself up for opportunities to strike. Yeah, because you have to train, you've got to study. You you did you have to get an EMT certification before you were hired? Uh, yeah, at the time I did. Uh, they were only hiring uh, EMT intermediates, is what we call them, um, or greater or paramedics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that was a pretty well-known thing. So, uh, something, you know, I figured whatever, if I had to go do a year of school, like to get my dream job, most people have to do plenty more than that. So yeah, it seemed like a pretty good deal. Yeah. So you go to school and this is because it's so competitive. 
Right. Yeah. So you was, you have to find a way to set yourself apart. Yeah, that, I think I want to say there was five thousand people at the that took the same written test that I took. Um, we hired a little over a hundred people off that list, so not very good odds, um, especially for someone who's like. Um, you know, I'm taking the test. I'm 19, 20 years old with how much life experience could I possibly have? Right. Like yeah. I was still living at home at the time. Like too, I'm just this kid amongst men, like taking this test. Uh, and so that's what I mean by like getting lucky. Cause I compare myself to some of these other people taking the test. And like at the time, my fire captain for Lake Mead, we were, t- we took the same written test. We sat next to each other and I was like, how, how can I stack up to this guy? You know, he's got certs a mile long. I remember when my, I like pulled up my resume the other day and it still said, uh, uh, captain of my soccer team was like, it made my resume cause I just needed oh, to wow. fill it up. Yeah. Just fill out any experience <laughs> yeah, you had at that right. point. Yeah. 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 And then now you mentioned you're an engineer. Yep. So you start out as firefighter one, explain the progression up to where you are today. Okay. So, uh, on our fire department, uh, you start out as a firefighter. Um, the, when you graduate the Academy, you get your firefighter one and your firefighter two is, uh, you're kind of doing like an internship per se for your firefighter two. So at the end of your rookie year, uh, they have a firefighter two exam and a little, uh, practical test. Um, we're usually pretty well trained up by then. So, um, excuse me, everybody, uh, generally passes that, uh, you got like a whole year. It's just like what your whole career is kind of leading up to. So, um, they pass that you get your firefighter two and and you're just a, a, instead of being a probationary firefighter, now you're just a firefighter. Um, and then paramedics could come up, uh, the same way on our department. Paramedics and our paramedic is not a rank on other departments. It can be, um, it is not on ours. Thank goodness. And, uh, um, after you get your firefighter, you are able to promote to engineer at, uh, you have to have at least three years on. Um, and then after that you can promote to captain. Now you don't need to be an engineer to be a captain. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you can promote uh, straight from firefighter to captain. I, my theory was I really believe in performing the jobs that you supervise. I think it makes supervising it easier. I think it gives you a little bit more credibility also. Um, so it was, I definitely wanted to be an engineer before I want to be a captain. I've also wanted to be a paramedic too, which tech isn't a rank, but you know, I'm going to be the supervisor on scene and I'd like to know a little bit about what I'm actually supervising here. We are really lucky on our fire department. We just have really good paramedics. So there's not a whole lot of uh, supervision needed, I guess, you know, it, when it comes to making the right decisions and making sure guys are following the guys, girls are following the protocols appropriately. Like all our, all our people are really dialed. So uh, I think we've just been fortunate, but that's something that we kind of get complacent in, right? Like just because we haven't gotten it wrong in a long time doesn't mean it won't happen. So um, that was one of the reasons I wanted to, to perform the jobs that I'm going to supervise. Uh, sorry, I'm going to get back on track here. <laughs> After uh, captain, you promote to battalion chief. They are the ones that they still live at the firehouse. They still are uh, kind of one of the Joes still. Uh, they manage the fire scenes. And then above that is uh, uh, assistant chief, deputy chief, and fire chief. And those guys are all nine to five kind of thing upstairs headquarters. Whatever. Yeah. Um, Real quick, I, I have a ton of questions about your day-to-day job. Sure. Oh, but what's your definition of leadership? Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about this, um, and uh, I don't know that I have a uh, just one definition. I was thinking uh, I was I've been really again lucky, right? Like just really fortunate to have uh, super great leaders. I think probably one of the best in the entire fire service. 
um, is where I spent the majority of my career coming up. Uh, and that was Captain Hannah. And uh, I, I don't know what one quality he has that makes him a great leader, but I, I think everyone can agree. Like you can, you can single somebody out immediately. And say, that is a great leader. That person they have what it takes, you know? And, and I think what that is, is it's just everything, right? Like you won't, I won't follow him into war if he's a bad person, you know, he's, you still have to be a good, honest, integrative person. Um, but, uh, does that have really much to do with leadership? Like telling the truth? I don't know that it really does, you know, but maybe it, it makes you like them a bit more and it makes you want to trust them. And I think there's just, that's probably a, a huge component, uh, is the trust aspect, right? Like, especially in my job where it can be pretty dangerous thing when the, what they're telling you to do. Um, and I mean, there was times where we'd be going into a fire and I'd be like, if this guy wasn't with me, there's no way I'd step foot in this house. It's way too hot. It's way too involved. Um, but you know, he's like, no, it's all right. Let's go. It's okay. And, and you're just like, well, shoot, this dude's forgotten more than I'll ever know about the fire service. So if he's saying it's okay, then surely it's all right. Um, uh, and that brings me to the next biggest component, which is, uh, to be inspirational. So, uh, to be a good leader, I think you need to be able to inspire people to do things, whether that is grow, promote, um, or just act when the time is appropriate. So, uh, the example I just used right now, uh, inspiring me to go and the rest of the crew to go into this uh, house fire. That's, you know, in anyone else's opinion, too far gone, but you know, there's somebody, we thought somebody was inside, we could hear them. And so we're going to risk a lot to save a lot in that scenario. Um, but, uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think good leaders keep, at least on my department, good leaders don't keep a crew for very long because they are just that they're super inspirational. So they're inspiring you to grow, to promote, to take classes. And generally with that comes with it, uh, tests and, um, promotional opportunities, you know, all that other stuff. So, um, I think you got to be really fluid to be a good leader too, because if you're a great leader, you're turning and burning personnel, right? Like you want them to be as good or better than you if you're a good leader. So, um, you need to learn how to, uh, teach probably very well, very fast and efficient. Cause, um, I would imagine it, I'm sure it's different depending on the uh, career you're in, but as far as mine goes, it's important to get them up to speed, up to snuff very quickly. Cause, who knows when the next, you know, call of your career is going to happen. You want to have a dialed crew uh, when that does come. So I say those are probably like the, th- the top three uh, qualities that would make a good leader. And I just, I wish I had a better answer for you, Creek, because um, I, I don't know that there is a definition. I was reading other definitions and I was like, okay, I can see that, but like, and I'd read it and I'd be like, but what if they're a liar? Like, I'm not going to trust a liar, you know, yeah. and, and they, they still have to be honest and they still have to, you know, like, I think it's uh, West Point has that, that prayer or whatever they have. Uh, it's like always, I, I'm going to butcher it. So please apologize. I apologize. But, um, it's, uh, something always choose the, never choose the easier wrong, always choose the harder, right. You know, and, and, that is like the definition of integrity to me. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it's right. And I think that is what integrity is, is making the right call, right decision, even though it's not the easy one right in front of your face. It's going to, might get thrown back at you. It might, you might get drugged through the mud, but that's the right call. And you know, you're going to have to live with that. So, um, I think being a good leader, if somebody told me I'm a good leader, 
I feel like that'd be like well, probably the best compliment you could give somebody because in order to be so, you have to have all these other qualities and aspects about you to make you one. Yeah, and I think you're right. If if you listen to past episodes, even on our podcast, everybody has a different definition, and um, you know, yours is interesting because I think in most working environments, things are pretty predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm generalizing right. things there. And in your profession specifically, there are moments where things are not predictable. Oh yeah. You know, you train for hours and hours, you're going to EMT school, you're, you're getting trained as, as a, you know, whatever level of, of a EMT or if you're a paramedic, but yet you can roll up on a scene, never been in that situation before. And somebody has to make a deci- decision and act. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I you can't imagine, you know. Yeah, I take uh, take Route ninety one for example. We had I wasn't on duty that day. I was off duty with my wife. Real uh, quick, let's. Uh, so Route ninety one was the concert in yes. Las Vegas that was October first. Yes. And so you're referring to the shooting that took place here, the mass shooting, correct? Yes, yeah. correct. Uh, so I mean, t- talking about like uh, becoming a leader really fast, really quick. We had guys that uh, are at the fireman level and we just needed people to step up and be a leader in a moment to head up a task force team of Metro officers, uh, Metro police officers and firefighters uh, to go inside the arena. They kind of do this uh, diamond formation around us and uh, to protect us in case something happens. And you mean, um, so the, so police are going in and they, they're there to protect so you as a firefighter, that's not your job. Your job, you don't have. I don't have the weapon on you. Tricks, yeah. Right, you don't <laughs> just, have that type of training. Right, and yeah, that inner agency um, communication, collaboration, and leadership is is very interesting with your job as well. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing I credit to my uh, former captain, Captain Hannah. He was uh, one of the uh, godfathers of this whole thing. This whole working with cops. Um, uh, we've seen before in other mass shootings where uh, typically, and this is just how things were have been done forever because this mass shooting thing just wasn't uh, really on the forefront of any of our training, you know, before. Um, we we typically have to wait for uh, the cops to go in to tell us, hey, it's safe, it's okay to go in. Well, in a movie theater, in a crowded arena like that, uh, that could take, I mean, it took hours. It took probably a day before they said, definitely safe. You guys can all go in now. Um, and I'm, if you are dead or dying, you don't have hours, right? You have very, you have minutes. So, uh, that kind of goes back into like that risk assessment profile I sort of touched on and briefly go, we'll risk very little to save very little. We'll risk, a, we'll risk a lot to save a lot. We'll risk nothing to save nothing. Right. If, uh, uh, if your house is completely engulfed in flames, there's no survivability profile left in that thing. We're, we're not going to go inside you know, however, if there are reports of somebody inside and it is viable still, we are going to risk a lot to save a lot there. And, uh, I think that is uh, pretty prevalent in the route 91, right? So we have this active shooter at the time. There was, I think what probably a lot of people don't understand and maybe where some of this like rumors and, uh, whatever have come from, there are reports of pe- of shooters everywhere up and down the strip. Um, you have somebody rolling into the Hooters uh, hotel, or somebody rolling into New York, New York, MGM, and any, anywhere. Which were the which were the clo- some the, of the closest hotels? Yeah, to, all the hotels to the surrounding festival that, that, all the hotels there, yeah. surrounding that event, 
and they're rolling in there with gunshot wounds. So someone calls 911 and they're saying, hey, we have somebody shot here at the Hooters. Okay, well, two plus two equals four. It's There's a shooter at the Hooters too, you know? And so they're getting reports of all this. It's just chaos, right? That's like any, any emergency scene, like the first thing to go is communication. And that's probably one of the most paramount things, right? So uh, we were just really information poor. <clears throat> Um, sorry, I have no idea where I'm going right now. Well, <laughs> you know what? Let's 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 go back a little bit before right. we dive into Route 91 because there's a whole other story right. that that goes along with this. Let's start smaller. Yeah. So um, you are on the job. It's a tif- typical day on the job for you, and your role is to right now as engineer is mm-hmm. to. Uh, so my role, I show up. I'm I'm the one that's responsible for the apparatus, depending on which apparatus I'm on for the day, mm-hmm. uh, and then everything. On it, all the tools, equipment. It's the uh, truck. Yeah, the yeah. fire truck, the fire engine, or the rescue, um, mm-hmm. depending on what I'm on each day. So I usually show up to work, grab a cup of coffee, and relieve the guy that's on it. We have uh, we can't go home until someone else relieves us, right? There's always someone. There's always boots in the spot. You know, there's someone sitting in your seat. So we relieve the person that's waiting on you. They usually give you a pass down everything they did. A lot of the times, it's what you learned that day. You know, or Hey, we got the so-and-so here. They're kind of being a jerk or we had a fire and this is what we did. This is what we learned. This is the tools we use, the equipment we uh, used. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so after they give you the pass down, um, you kind of know a little bit more like, okay, they use the chainsaw and the, uh, you know, uh, gas powered fan. So I better go double check those things, make sure they're fired up, ready to go and ready to use again. And, um, so we have a list of every single piece of equipment on the apparatus. We're responsible to, to put eyes or hands on it and check the little box that, right next to it. Um, and we do that. We maintain the rigs a bit and uh, make sure they're all up running, sirens, lights, everything works. Um, that usually takes us in until about breakfast. And uh, the meanwhile, the firefighters are doing station duties and whatnot. And captains are getting the plan of the day together. Uh responding to emails generally to the chief. Um, and then we all have breakfast together <clears throat> around the kitchen table. And, uh, that's usually where we all, Hey, did you hear they did this yesterday? They did that. Um, uh, that's usually where we bring up any issues you found, any things we need to work on. Hey, the chainsaw is super dirty. Let's tear that apart and clean it back, put it back together. And, um, uh, then honestly, that's where like therapy happens too, right? Yeah. Like, so like uh, that's marriage therapy, it's family therapy. It is, they say it's like family, you, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They say you could solve the world's problems at a firehouse table, like <laughs> firehouse kitchen table. Um, and then, uh, usually after that, it's, uh, captain kind of has the day laid out for you. There's generally training we have to do. Um, a lot of people don't realize that we do business inspections. Uh, we were doing school drills. We do, uh, Hydrant, we service all the hydrants in town too. So there's a lot of like somewhat monotonous work that goes along with it. Also, it's not just fires and car accidents and whatnot. Uh, we all have these certifications that we have to maintain continuing education hours on. Um, so there's, we have online training, we have actual training. Uh, um, so our day is usually pretty filled with something. Um, and then, uh, usually after that, we'll break for lunch. Usually training happens some more. We eat dinner and then after dinner, it's kind of your own time around the station. It's when you can rewind and relax a little, or relax a little bit. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. That's okay. So, um, during the course of your day, while you're training, while you're, um, out on inspections, calls come up. 
Yep, you exactly. Know? Yeah. And then, I mean, and yes. you have to drop everything and, and go. Yeah. Like yesterday, we just ran 16 calls <laughs> uh, yeah. yesterday. So in the middle of all this stuff too is, is calls and, you know, helping people and making sure everything's buttoned up and done right and whatever. Uh, one of the quotes my old captain used to say too is like, there's no 911 one. Like, we're it. There's yeah. no one else coming. So, like, it's up to you to figure it out. And, and like, you find yourself in these kind of unusual situations. Like, I don't, I don't really know. I don't, you know, but like, there's no one else coming. So, I better know. We better figure this out. Let's, you know, use what we got and use the tools or call the people that would know the answer, you know, and get these people that called us here a, a correct answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that can be a little strange sometimes. It's, like you were saying before, like it's, you know, it's unpredictable. You don't really know what to expect. It's something different every freaking day. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, you, you have to figure it out, whatever it is. People are relying on you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, yeah, you gotta step up. Uh, you know, just yesterday is some odor of some like adhesive at this hotel and they were doing some construction there. And, uh, you know, we're like, well, I don't know anything about adhesive odors, right? Like that's never been in the training. So we're, you know, we do some more digging into it, making sure it's all ventilated out and talk to the people that are smarter than us that work at the hotels. The engineering guys are freaking dialed usually. And, uh, he came up, he had a perfect plan and, and it sounded great. And we talked to the construction workers. They're like, yeah, we've been working around it, you know, for days and we're okay. And this is what it is. We saw the bottle. And, um, so it was just like, like that was a good example of just being fluid. Like, I don't know what, I don't know anything about adhesive fumes. Right. Uh, but I know if someone is complaining of a headache or if they're, if they have an issue with it, then well, it's up to us to make sure it's going to get handled and it's, we're going to all figure it out. And everybody wants the same thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, the employer doesn't want their employee to be sick or feeling bad. So we all want to fix the problem. It's pretty nice. It's a pretty nice part about just living in America. Like everybody, generally, everybody wants to do good. Like they all want to be a part of the solution. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that would be a good day where regardless of... <clears throat> My guess is that that would be, you know, a good call is where you show up and you may not know all the answers, but there's someone who takes the lead and mm-hmm. they're able to facilitate communication and, and find the answers. And, um, I'm sure through troubleshooting, figure out what, you know, what's going on, whether it's a car accident or a fire, or, you know, finding out the mystery mm-hmm. adhesive smell, yeah. you know, describe a time when you have, um, you have a- approached a scene and leadership didn't go so well. Okay. All right. Uh, so I'll have to be as vague as possible. Um, of course. Yeah. We don't, we don't want it. Right. Uh, so they're typically on medical calls, paramedics step up and run the show. They tell you what to do. Uh, that wasn't really happening. There was kind of a lot going on. This person had, uh, um, slumped over, uh, the wheel at, he was in a parking lot and slumped over the wheel. So we had gotten him out. A lot of things happening really quickly. Pulled him out onto the backboard. Check, no pulse, not breathing. So we hook him up to the monitor. Um, we're really kind of expecting uh, the paramedic. Usually, the first responding paramedic steps up, and they're the one that takes lead. This was the private ambulance at the time, and uh, they weren't doing that. It's not. I'm only an intermediate. Excuse me. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I've seen this done a hundred plus times before. So, you know, these are the things we have to do. These are the things that need to get done real quick. And so I was like, okay, you start on ventilation. You start on compressions. You start working on a line. You hook them up to the monitor. Let's see what we got. And uh, 
next thing we knew, we had him loaded up on the way to the hospital. Uh, and that kind of show just continued, you know, in route to the hospital. Uh, thankfully, the paramedic was handling all the drugs and the dosages and stuff. There's little you could get wrong. It was just more about uh, making sure things are happening uh when they need to happen and uh, very promptly. Right. So like, it's very important for compressions to start and continue after you start them on, on a uh, cardiac arrest. Um, so I'd say that was probably the one that comes to mind uh, the most in it. Uh, uh, paramedics are in like a pretty precarious spot. Like they're not the formal leader there on the scene. It's a captain technically. Right. And, uh, they, uh, but you know, it's not really captains. It's not in their book of tricks either. Is is this cardiac arrest? So, paramedics have to be that whole leadership uh, exchange has got to be really fluid. Um, you know, they're leading us all the way to the call. We get to the call, and the paramedic sort of takes over. And uh, after that, the you know, as soon as the call is over, boom, captain's back in charge, and he's you know, again the leader. Um. That kind of brings up an interesting topic. We sort of have a sort of dynamic, I guess you could say, on the fire department. We have formal and informal leaders. Um, our uh, formal leader is always the uh, the captain. Like you're you're the hierarchy that you right. that you yeah. have yeah like within on, the organization yeah on paper the formal leader they're the one that's gonna you know call you <laughs> to the wolves if they you know if they have to if it comes to that. Uh, but the informal leader, they handle a lot of stuff that they probably don't get uh, the credit for. The day-to-day things in the firehouse. I mean, if you think about, you have three different, very different families living underneath the same roof just at different times. So probably a lot of things come up, you know, just silly, like any household or any family goes through. We go through that also at the firehouse. But it's usually, like at my station, there's... Uh, 29 guys and one girl there, you know, and <laughs> living under one roof. So there's a lot of little monotonous things that happen. And, yeah. uh, the informal leader steps up and they take care of all that. Um, and, uh, I think they have two completely different roles too, the formal and informal leader, right? Don't they like, uh, um, the informal leader, it's sort of their job to, uh, kind of manage the like attitudes and the, uh, like they operate very well in the gray area, I feel like, in which is a, a very important, I think, as a leader uh, to have an informal leader. If you're trying to juggle both, like that has got to be impossible. On one hand, you're trying to take care of the black and white. You're trying to, uh, you know, stay in your lane and you're the supervisor. You can only say so much. You can only do so much also, right? Like you are in the HR world. I imagine you're like held pretty accountable for a lot of things. But this informal leader... Uh, really isn't like you know, and that they're kind of any- like your peer. Right? Yeah. Like, and that yeah. could be anybody, right? Exactly. Yeah, like, especially for you. If you just happen to be that person mm-hmm. who's right there and your captain is dealing with something else, you know, you've got to make a decision. You've mm-hmm. got to figure out what's going on to help. And yeah, that's that like act, fluid, right? That's the fluid leadership yeah. where it's just, I mean, it's gotta be, it has to, for it to work right. It has to be very fluid and everyone needs to know their role. <clears throat> And it works best when people stay in their lane. And mm-hmm. when it's the captain's turn to be the formal leader again, you, it's their turn, you know, and it, and it vice versa. When it, uh, when it's the informal leader's chance to, you know, step up, then I think the captain really needs to promote that. Right. Cause he, 
Uh, the how, do, how else will we grow? How else do we learn to lead? How right. else are, like who's going to be who's the future of this department? Yeah, and and that was um, my <clears throat> next question was you know you not every call or or every situation that you're in is going to go perfectly. There's there's just no way, um, especially because they're all so different. Mm-hmm. What do you do uh, w- at your department when things don't go well? Do you have a debrief session or how how do you um, how do you bring that back as a learning opportunity? So. <clears throat> Whether the calls go well or not, uh, on every single fire, we have a debrief. Uh, we talk about, and nothing goes exactly perfect, right? So there, I feel like even if you did everything right, there's still learning points for people that wouldn't have done it the same way and maybe would have made the mistake. So uh, we have a debrief on every single uh, fire we have. And uh, they, uh, it's the captains and the battalion chiefs talking. Um, they go over step-by-step step what they did, what they saw, what they said. And uh, kind of go through the motions there. Everyone's allowed to. It's usually a pretty um, welcoming, I guess maybe is the right word, environment where you have the opportunity to say, well, no, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have done it this way for these reasons why. Kind of like breakfast yeah. you know, around yep. the table. It's more exactly. of an open forum for <clears throat> uh, for people to express how they might yep. do things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, and that's all the formal leaders. You know, They form up and they uh, handle this debrief. And a great example like that is a great example of what formal leaders are there for, right? They're there to speak upon the rest of the crew. If I had a problem with something or the way someone did something on the incident, I'd bring it to my captain and he could bring it to this debrief and, and talk about it there. It's probably much more eloquent than, I, than I'd bring it up anyway, so it's probably a good thing that it, he does. we have it like that. Yeah, and I'm sure there are certain things that happen or certain conversations where the formal leadership that, that you describe would update processes or make changes the way, the way you operate yep, you know, within yeah. the department based on that feedback. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're, we're always growing the landscaping, the landscape's always changing. So, uh, we have to, I always say like you adapt or die. Like that's, you know, we have to, Yeah. we can't foresee everything. And this world is changing too. It's not the same fire department. It was 50 years ago. So, uh, the formal leaders, that's what they need to do. They need to create new policies. They need to think, you know, about things and, uh, try to be proactive instead of reactive as best as we can. It's very difficult to do in our job. It's hard to think about the absolute worst tragedy you can imagine and try to plan for that. Uh, but that's exactly what these guys do. And that's exactly, I mean, they're really good at it. Yeah. You know. Do you see yourself as a hero? <laughs> uh, no, I absolutely do not. Unequivocally, no. Yeah, I, I just think that's interesting because um, you know there, there are lots of people, and maybe the younger version of you, you, know, you watched what happened with nine eleven, and you may have seen those, you know, those firefighters as heroes. Yeah, you know, and mm-hmm. but it is it's interesting when the tables are turned, you know, and you're in that spot, kind of how you view yourself, you know. Yeah, I'm a very firm believer. Uh, I can't speak for everybody, and I'll only speak for myself, but I don't. And it's cheesy as it is, but uh, I don't rise to any occasion, right? I just fall back on my training. So, like, I am I'm a nobody. I'm just a I'm just a guy. And uh, when these challenging um, calls or emergencies are placed in front of me, uh, it is all the credit goes to the fire department and the leaders that have trained me up so far. Uh, because that's what those are, they're their ideas that I'm stealing. It's nothing that I have is original. I'm not making this up as I go, this is the, this is them, right? Like I'm just the person that happened to be in the right place at the right time, uh, that has the capability of performing out their training that they've provided me. And, uh, 
So that's why I don't consider myself a hero because I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't really know how to do, right? Like this is just, this is what they pay me to do. And, and that's what I do. So, uh, the heroes, those are the guys that, I mean, we just not too long ago had a fire. Um, some landscape truck was driving by, took a ladder off his landscape truck, threw it to the second window and rescued two people out of the backside of an apartment. Like what does that guy know about saving people? Right. And, or the risks, dangers that, or that he's facing. He's not, doesn't have the same PPE that I have. He doesn't, doesn't have anything, you know, but mm-hmm. this dude steps up and rises to the occasion. He doesn't, he doesn't fall back on what training, you know, what he throws a ladder to a tree to, to trim it up or, or something like he doesn't, he has no training to fall back on. That's the guy that rises. That's the hero, not us. Like we are just there to, that's literally what we get paid to do. You know, that's what, and we all love doing it. Like that is what you say earlier. Like what's a good call. That's a good call for us. It's a terrible tragedy, mm-hmm. you know, and those are two very different things. Uh, a good call doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome is super positive. Um, it is. That's what we've, that's why we signed up to do this. That's like a good call in my opinion. Yeah. That's, that's a good distinction to make. Mm, yeah. The outcome may not always be positive, right. but if your team is implementing your training and experience in the way that you know how, then, yep. yeah, then, absolutely. then that's a success, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, you know, earlier we touched on, um, the harvest festival route mm-hmm. 91. And, um, you know, you were talking about how agencies or, you know, how police or how firefighters were responding to that situation, but your role there was much different. You were not working. Correct. You know, you were there and you were enjoying the concert and, uh, tell us about that day. Tell us what happened. Yeah. So that was day three. Um, I was there with my wife all three days. We love country music and love these, uh, country music festivals, we actually got lucky and just got these tickets last minute. I mean, we got them like the concert started on Friday at like two or something like that. We got the tickets at Friday at noon. So everything was last minute. We're just kind of, okay, you know, if we get it, we get it great. If not, no big deal. So, uh, we had just a blast, uh, on Friday, Saturday night, Sunday was awesome too. We got there probably the earliest we did those three days on Sunday. Um, everything was going great. The music was incredible. Like, I feel like if you've ever been to a country music festival, you, you know, like how awesome the crowd is. Like, it's just a bunch of really good people out there. Everyone's nice. Everyone's like pleasant. I don't know. It's just kind of like what, like uh, you would like hope your uh, like neighborhood is like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And stuff. So, um, so then, uh, Jason, I think he's in his second song, I want to say. And, uh, first few shots ring out and, uh, uh, be the first to admit, I didn't think there were shots. I, I thought someone lit off a firework and I think my, can I curse on here or no? Yeah. You, I was like, who the fuck would light a firework off in the middle of a concert venue? Like what a prick, you know, I was just like, I was so angry at that person. Like, why would you do that? You know, it's like that, like he's just such a stupid, ignorant thing to do. Like everyone's trying to have a good time. Like why in the world would you do that? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Jason Aldean is still playing at the time and I'm, I think probably almost everybody. I'm probably not can't speak for all, but I'd assume almost everybody thought it was that because nobody moved a muscle at least around us. And uh, we were pretty close to the stage. Uh, if you're looking at the stage, off to the right, between the uh, like where the cameras were filming it in the Mandalay Bay. <clears throat> um, so uh, more shots ring out, and I glance over, and maybe ten feet or so is 
a guy had got shot in the head three times or had three holes, I should say, in his head. And I was like, oh, crap, like that's not fireworks. Jason Aldean stops playing now. The music stops. You can hear the gunshots much more clear. You're not hearing them over, you know, the loudspeakers or whatever. And uh, this is like not rising to the occasion, falling back on my training, right? Like I can't control I don't, I can't like think and make my heart rate slow down. I can't think and like stop, you know, not breathe this fast or whatever. So when those, when in that moment, when I realized it was gunshot and there is, I mean, like panic and terror doesn't do it justice to describe the scene right there. Um, I just recall being like so freaking calm and in control of my thoughts, actions, everything. I like, I even recall like, holy cow like my heart rate i mean this is happening in a millisecond right so like i even like recall thinking like holy cow like my heart rate must be 60 beats a minute like this is nuts um my wife is right next to me i'm standing next to my uh one of my friends is also an off-duty fireman and uh we were like hey let's just get down let's not i don't want to be a part of the problem let's start being a part of the solution um there's like a little bit that i know about active shooters uh, and that is it doesn't generally, it doesn't last long. And also as soon as Metro or the cops intervene, one of two things happen. The person offs himself or they kill him, right? They, it, ha- it is like, as soon as they enter the room, it is like, boom, boom, they're, the yeah. situation is handled. And, and you know this from your experience from training on, I know this from working. Yeah. Right. From working from captain Hannah, who's yeah. the guy that, I mean, he drew up this whole, uh, Mac tech, uh, plan where we go in with the cops and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the guys that's just saying, um, so I'm like, and I have all the confidence in the world in the police force here in Las Vegas too. So I'm like, this dude's going to be done soon. Like, let's just try to not get trampled, not get shot. Let's get out of the way of the line of fire. So, um, I looked down at my wife. She is, as I'm sure you can imagine terrified. And, um, we hop over a barrier and uh, I tell her, hey, just stay calm. Metro's really good at their job. They're going to get this guy. It's going to be over really soon. Let's just not be a part of the problem. She says, okay. And uh, and, and you're you're falling back on that trust that you're used to having on your job. It's yeah, like you yeah. know these guys. You know what they're capable of. Right. Like and I, yeah. I work with them. I, I yeah. see them all, you know, on calls every single day. And uh, I know the professionalism that goes along with being a Metro officer. Like these, these are the, you know, if I'm – able to call upon somebody in that scene. Those are the people that I want. It's Metro, right? Like those are the ones I know. Those are the ones I trust. They're they're the ones that are going to go in and, you know, do a great job. So, uh, this is, uh, and I only realize I only know this now from that uh, New York times video that came out where it had broken down everything. Uh, so there's like, uh, this is maybe about two minutes go by right now. We're on, we're on the other side, excuse me. We're on the other side of some metal barriers. Uh, and it's just like the barriers to keep like the crowd out of like the camera stage area. So we hop over that and, uh, I'm with my wife. Um, there's a break in gunfire for about a minute, and 30 seconds, somewhere in that minute 30. Uh, I regrettably make the choice to tell my wife to run out of the venue. Um, at the time I thought, uh, that it was over. The guy is done and that's it. Like now we need to like start picking up the pieces of this problem, put it mm-hmm. back together. Uh, and I was wrong. He wasn't, I don't know what happening was going on in that minute 30, but he was not done. And, uh, 
So I told my wife, hey, jump the barrier, run that way towards the exit, go to the Tropicana, don't stop running until you get there. And uh, so that's what we did. I'm doing air quotes. Yeah. And I mean, see it because it's not what happened. Yeah. It's not because we have an active shooter situation that has never occurred before that situation where there's somebody who is shooting from a building nearby, Yeah, you know, and, and I can totally understand how you're like, you know what? I need to go into firefighter mode now. I know that there's people who are injured and that's, you know, that's what I'm going to do right now. Mm -hmm. And I even recall like at the time, like thinking uh, when we're over these barriers, like, okay, we're like super information poor right now. Like how do we, we, we need a lot of information in a really short amount of time. Where is this guy even shooting from? You know? Cause like that matters tremendously of where you're going to stand on an object. Cause you don't want, you want to be the object you and then the guy on the other side of it. Yeah, right. So, yeah. um, uh, I had like just done like a quick little look around thing and I thought I had heard it coming from somewhere around the Luxor. Now that is not to say that the, that I was just my best guess that's time in the middle of this chaos, right? So, uh, yeah, so I tell my wife, you know, let's, let's you run to the car, go home. Um, in a perfect world, I think if I could have done it again, I would have went with my wife uh, out of the venue, made sure she got out, and then went back in. Uh, that was a difficult thing to juggle for a long time. You know, I was like, boy, how could, I mean, I'm a person that believes your marriage is the, First, that's the most important thing in your life, right? And uh, how could you leave the most important person behind in that scene uh, and want to go to work, right? Like that's not okay. That's not a good. That's not a good choice. Um. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, talking this through with a lot of other people I respect, uh, to include my brother-in-law, I had he had helped me realize. Hey, you probably weren't abandoning her in that moment. You had thought everything is over. There is no more threat. Like you're doing this quick threat assessment and it's done. It's zero now. So it's not a big deal for her to make it out on it on her own. Um, I was wrong. And the shooting started up shortly after we had separated again. I hopped over the barrier. That person that had been shot. There's a few people doing that I'd seen initially. There's a few people doing CPR on him. I told him to stop. We can't help this person. We need to like, let's go. We're in the middle. There's still shots being fired. And, uh, so then I ran out and, uh, just trying to find who needs the help, who is all this stuff, right? Like triage. That's the thing running through my head. I need to find out how many people there are, who needs the help, who is, who is like even capable of being helped at this point. Um, and which is very important because you could be spending some time on, someone that is too far gone when Mm -hmm. you could have been right. So, um, I've somehow find this person had, uh, was kind of inchworming his way to, uh, like a pillar. It was like this metal, uh, pillar that there was like a banner over it where you could like take pictures, you know, or whatever. And, uh, so I go and help him out. Someone has just taken off as I get there. They'd taken their shirt off and put it over his leg to try and help the bleeding. And I'm, we're talking a matter of a few seconds. And I, by the time I get there, this, this white t-shirt is just filled with blood. So it's not doing its job. Uh, I meet this man and, uh, he's actually a doctor and he's like, Hey, I just need, I need a tourniquet. I can't get it on myself. You know, uh, 
I take my belt off, tie a tourniquet around his leg real quick, throw him on my back, and we start taking off towards the medical tent. Uh, now, this whole time, um, I am like you were talking about like hero stuff before. Like I'm not, it's not even like in my head that I could even get shot. Like I'm not, I've never once scared of getting shot or worried about anything. When I bring this up three steps out of that cover that we were behind, there's like a three shots hit the pavement right in front of my feet. And my thought is like, man, it would suck to get shot in the foot right now. And like still have to carry this person like that probably hurt which is like who that's just a weird thing. I feel like to think, you know, in the middle of this thing, like I'm just like so confident that nothing can touch me. I'm invincible, like in my head. Right. Um, and that's not, that's not courage. That's stupidity. I think like, that's just, um, I think it's pretty silly to think that. Right. So I, uh, carry him, uh, to the medical tent on my back, drop him off on my way to the medical tent. I had noticed, uh, a whole bunch of people like hidden kind of back in this bar. And, uh, that was the thing with some people. They were just uh, paralyzed with fear, right? Like they had just, they just needed somebody to say, go do this. And they needed a task and they could complete that task. They just needed direction. Right. Yeah. Um, and I get it. Like that is, that's what chaos does to some people. Right. And that's, again, that's not, I'm not anyone special. I wasn't born a different way than anybody else. I was just trained, you know, better than an accountant was right. Or like a doctor was like, they don't do this active shooter training that firefighters do. So, um, so I, I go back to the group. There's about half dozen to eight people in this bar. And, uh, there's two women that are shot, one in the shoulder, one in the hip. Uh, I ask everybody if they can walk. They all like jump up and I'm like, okay. I tell the one that's shot in the shoulder to hold on to my shirt. And the one that's shot in the hip can't walk, I carry her in my arms and tell the other one to grab onto my shirt and I'll show you where the medical tent's at. And I tell everybody else to follow me because the exit's right there. And so we all just run out and back to the medical tent. Uh, this would be springs into my second biggest regret of that night, um, was staying in the medical tent. Uh, when I got back to the medical tent, as I'm sure anybody can imagine, it's it's the medical tent for well, the biggest mass shooting in American, modern American history. So it is there is a lot of people in there hurt, and uh, the private ambulance company, Community Ambulance, uh, is there and they're doing everything they can do. Uh, they're not set up for this, right? This isn't. They have a bag. We say like our bags are capable of handling a mile long worth of calls, one inch deep, right? Well, this is, you know, two inches wide, a mile long, a mile deep worth of calls here. So it's all trauma and we only have so much trauma, but we could deliver a baby. You know, we still have the OB kid, you know, in our bag. So, uh, I don't know why, uh, which is the point I'm trying to get is I don't know why I stayed in the medical tent. Um, but I did. And that's something I have had to live with. I think a lot about, uh, so 58 people died that night. Right. And I think a lot about how many fewer people, you know, would have, would have, how many people, how many people could have I saved had I gone back out? Uh, because I was, I felt like the most responsible person, uh, there that night because of my training. And because you now I was thinking like, okay, 22,000 people are in attendance that night. How many are law enforcement 
uh, military, firefighters, whatever, right? Um, I'll say like 2,000 of that, 22,000. Of those 2,000, how many have the training I do in gunshot wounds and trauma? You know, maybe 100. Of that 100, how many have any training in active shooter, especially the amount of training I've had thanks to my captain, right? One, and me. Like, I'm the guy. I'm the ant in my head. I'm the answer for this scene, and I didn't, I wasn't perfect, right? And that was my responsibility to execute everything perfectly, uh, and I I did not. Um, so I stay in the medical tent, and uh, there's um, a bunch of people in need of a lot of help. There's a lot of help in the medical tent also. I mean, this is, like I said before, we've got a lot of off-duty Cops, firemen, uh, veterans in there, everyone, like I said before, wants to do good, right? They want, they're there to help. So the trick there and to kind of tie us into some leadership stuff was, uh, you, I didn't, I never gave enough value to my uniform until like that moment. Like, and I'm in a t-shirt and jeans and cowboy hat boots, like, I'm a nobody to everybody there. Like I can yell and say and talk, but at the end of the day, I'm just some Joe that's barking these orders out. Right now, if I'm in there with my fire uniform on with a bulletproof vest and helmet and medical supplies and bag, that's a different, that's a different talk that we have. Right. Um, so that was tricky to try. Cause this is, we have all these people in there helping, but no one in there, you do this, you do that, you be here. These are your patients. These are your patients. You triage everybody when they're coming in. You tell us what they are, you know, what level of injuries they have. Uh, we didn't have that. And how could you really? Like, it's that's next to impossible in that scene unless it's set up prior to anything happening. Right. <coughs> Sorry, I'm choking. Um, and how, and how would you know? I mean, you couldn't predict this. So, you know, at this point in time, you're doing the best you can with mm-hmm. the training you have. Yep. So you're you're in the medical tent, and then you did you decide to stay there after a while, or yeah, I was what there. Next? So once we're, we have people coming in and out of this thing, we're trying to patch them up as best we can, send them out to. I don't really know where to truthfully where we're sending them out to. We're right by an exit, and later on, I find out that that's where a lot of treatment triaging and transporting is happening so uh this is also we have hundreds of people coming up their private vehicles trying to take people to the hospital like uh what why would and there's another example of a hero why would uh i'll you know why would somebody do that why would they do that right like that doesn't make any sense to do that you know that that it it's not like a logical thought to I'm going to get in my car and drive back towards that danger and take as many people as I can. You know, those other, those are the other heroes in this, uh, chaos too. It's, it's those guys, not us. Um, so anyways, uh, we're sending people out as best we can. Um, and, uh, it's, I say like slowing down, but it's, we're to the point now where like, um, the critical patients that we have, there's like all of us have about two or three of our own patients that we're taking care of. We're trying to get them bandaged up, IV started, uh, stabilized as best we can. I had the woman shot in the hip, the man shot in the leg, and another 
a young girl shot in the back. Uh, the most severe of that was the one shot in the back. She couldn't feel her legs. Uh, it was kind of touch and go. So she's also in a spot uh, nearest the entrance um, where people helping could have easily tripped over her, moved her out of the way. Uh, all these things that we don't want to do when there is a hole in the middle of your back where your spine is, right? Like that's And that's where the gunshot was. Right smack dab there in the middle. Um, so it, uh, judgment call, I thought it was like the most important priority to stop that stuff from happening. So I was on all fours, kind of just over her, making sure nobody touched her, bumped her until we got uh, a backboard to get her going. Um, <laughs> out of nowhere, her dad, who's an off-duty police officer, shows up. He had just gotten done taking people to the hospital unknowing to him that his daughter was even shot. Uh, he comes back and he's, you know, what would any father want to do? Like pick your daughter up in your arms, get her the heck out of there and go. Right. That's, that's priority one and nothing's getting in the way of that. Uh, and he showed up and kind of wanted to do just that. And I said, Hey, whatever you want to happen, it's your call. But if this was my daughter, I would want everything done by the numbers. We need a backboard. She shot in the back. He said, okay, and left and was back seconds later with a backboard. Now, if you can imagine, there's like over 600 people here that are wounded, right? Where in the world do you get a backboard in the middle of this? I don't know, but he does. Yeah, talk about somebody who has a task. Yeah. And they're going to no go, kidding. you know what I yeah, mean? Nothing's and they're going to go. Yeah. So he comes back uh, with this backboard. We load her up, put her in the back of this pickup truck, uh, and I ride into the hospital uh, there in the back of the pickup truck. I drive by, actually, I was supposed to be on duty that day. I drive by my crew who's in the middle of the boulevard uh, doing their triage and treatment thing and wave to one of them and say hello to the other. And I am not fully grasping anything right now, right? Like none of this, because that, again, is my training. Like we can't get personal in the moment because that gets in the way of rational thinking. You know, we have a lot to remember and think and a like list to go down of things that need to happen uh, very quickly. So emotions muddy that water up mm-hmm. fast. So nothing is registering still. That's my body's just You're in work storing that st- yeah, stuff for later. So <clears throat> we get to uh, Valley Hospital, get her in, the father and I. And uh, I run back into the uh, man that was shot in the leg initially and uh, – He's there. I help as much as I can with some reunification efforts. End up running into uh, a uh, physician's assistant, the doctor, you know, there. And excuse me, she uh, happens to be a guy I work with, his wife. Um, so I'm just helping her out as best I can. Excuse me, at the hospital. And I think it's about three o'clock in the morning is when I call Lyft and head back home. Yeah. So, I mean, you would have been on scene regardless. Right. I yeah. mean, you happen to be there, but from what you just said, you would have been on scene working. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And actually, in the middle of the uh, chaos in the medical tent, I had called my captain uh, to try to get <laughs> supplies delivered there because I know he's coming down there with the MCI unit, which is the one that's the unit that has the stuff for what's MCI? Multiple casualty incidents. Oh, gotcha. So okay. they're the ones that have the you know, two inch wide mile deep supplies, right? Like they're the 
that's the answer to this problem right now. And there's times where we're using like whatever we can as tourniquets that it's not really intended for because we're out. We're, mm. we're done. I remember we were like ran out and I'm like, I guess we'll like cut the straps off the bag and start using that as tourniquets now. Like if we get another one in, um, thankful. And I've talked to my captain since then. And thankfully he didn't answer the phone cause he likely would have stopped whatever he was doing to get, I'm his guy, right? Like he'd stop whatever to get me back and out and safe again. And, um, also I was so fortunate to get a hold of my wife, uh, eventually in that medical tent, there was a off duty fireman that was under the, uh, under the camera stage. So if we could just touch on her story for a little bit, cause I think it's really important. Uh, so we split up, I go do my thing. I see that guy getting CPR done and the gunshots start right back up. So she takes cover immediately underneath the, uh, camera stage. Um, and, and you have no idea this is going none, on at this point. You none. you think it's done. You're going to go help. And now she's, this is her story. And here's another thing. Like I, I'm like in full on work mode. And because I think because I was so confident that I can't get shot that there's, well, there's no way my wife's going to get shot. Like she's on her way out, you know, in my head. And uh, she's no longer a concern to you. Yeah. yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Like right. uh, I had just put that so far on the back burner and other problems in front of me, you know, had taken the front. So she, there she is in this, uh, under this camera stage, uh, staying there, trying to not get shot, right. Taking as much cover as she can from this, trying to put as much stuff between her and space, uh, between her and the shooter. So, uh, put yourself, uh, in my shoes, I am go, 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 go work mode. This happened, this happened, this happened. I'm running, I'm assessing. There's no time for free thought, right? Now put yourself in her shoes where you're sitting there and you're hearing these shots ringing out and they're getting louder and louder and then quieter and quieter and then louder and louder. And you hear the whiz, you hear the bumblebee, just, you know, coming by you. Um, you have plenty of time to think about things. And like, since we've talked later, um, we just have so different, uh, such different hurdles we, we've had to overcome from this. Um, me never thinking, um, going to die, never thinking my wife's going to die. Her thinking, well, my husband's for sure dead because he just ran back that way and that's where the dude was shooting from and we just saw a dead guy right there. Like, So my husband's dead, obviously. And you know, she said to herself times throughout the night, like, okay, one of us has got to get home to our two children because we can't go home with no, our, our, you know, there's got to be one parent that survives this thing. Uh, so that's become her job now. That was like her. Yeah. That's her yeah. responsibility now is, is our two children. Um, thank God she has those kind of thoughts, you know, like I feel like it's that perfect yin and yang kind of matching up there. Um, so uh, she comes into contact with this off duty, uh, fireman from California and his wife, and they're hiding under there also trying to not be a part of the problem as best they can. And, uh, finally the shooting stops and the guy says, all right, let's go and takes my wife, his wife, and they run out of the event, uh, in this process from enjoying the concert to getting to that, uh, podium, she had lost her, uh, all her stuff, her camera, her phone, her phone, her keys, her purse. Actually she has a purse. All this stuff must have fallen out of her purse. Uh, so I'm calling and calling and calling and calling and, every fifth call, you know, ends up going through or whatever. And while I'm doing the stuff in the medical tent and, uh, it's just going to voicemail and I'm like, Oh, can't, 
that's deal with that in a minute. Like I got this other thing too. I got to take care of. So I get this phone call from this Anaheim fireman. Uh, and I think it was Anaheim, I should say. And, uh, off duty guy. And he's like, Hey, I've got your wife. She's okay. You know, here she is. And we talked for like a, a minute and, uh, she's like, Hey, I'm okay. I'm going home with this person and his wife. So he goes home, he drops my wife and his wife off at our house and he goes back to help and likely to transport some people. Uh, like what a awesome moment that is for me because even when like you can't be there and I'm sure, uh, this little girl's father felt the same way. Like even when you yourself can't be there for your family, like what a great feeling it must be for someone else to step up and be that person for them in the time of need. You know, my wife says too, like, she's like, I just needed someone to tell me, go run here, do this. And I could have done it, but I just didn't know what to do, you know? And, and that's what I, I mean, we saw that. I saw that everywhere I went. That was the case for everybody. Like I'm not getting shot right now. So this is good enough for now until yeah. someone else tells me otherwise. Like, right. Like that's, that's like a win. I'm not in the biggest danger right now. So I'm not doing anything until someone says something. Um, and, uh, so, so I get home at three o'clock or so in the morning and my mom's there. My stepdad's there. My, uh, sister had like just left and, uh, my wife's in bed with our two kids. Like I'm sure you would want to be. And, uh, we freaking gave each other a huge big hug and kiss. And it was like a moment in time where like you will, nothing will ever let me forget, you know, that moment right there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, went to sleep and you know, life, that's something else we talk about too. Like life doesn't stop for you. We still have at the time a two and three year old kid, like that need two and three year old stuff and attention and things. And, um, so it's trying to get back into the swing of things and trying to figure out what, new your new normal is going to be now you know and uh now like a day or two later everything is setting in think where i'm assessing everything i did said didn't do uh my same with my wife too right like we're trying to get over this fear this you know like i never would ever want my wife my family to not feel safe when i'm around like that's like a husband's job you know like that's one of like, that's like a primal thing I feel like in something that you're just supposed to do. Uh, so feeling responsible for those feelings, you know, it's another, it's, there's just all these, all these post incident hurdles that need to be overcome. And probably the smartest thing we did was like immediately start talking to people. Uh, my wife's company ADP sent out, a uh, uh, therapist guy, he did like a little debriefing with us, helped us work through a couple things. And uh, we had talked to him for about an hour, which was good talking to just somebody else. And uh, you know, we're like saying our full story with the other person sitting right there for like some of the first times also. So, um, and then that was just, I shared my story on Facebook. I had gotten a lot of positive feedback from that. Uh, it was super, super therapeutic for me. 
hearing other people, uh, getting feedback from, or I don't know if feedback is the right word maybe, but hearing from other people that were at the event too. And, uh, or people just, I've never met before in my life saying, this is a story that I choose to think about now when someone talks about October one or route 91, this will be what I think of first instead of that man's face. Right. Um, and like when I read that, man, I was like, Oh gosh, like that is, that's it. That's what I want. Like I want, Someone, I want people to feel a little bit better, and I want people to not think of that dude. I want them to think of good stories that have come out of this. Yeah, I mean, you you describe so much of that in your story is people coming together, people going back to the scene who had never had training or driving to take people to the hospital, you know, and not yeah. thinking about what's going to happen to their car or to themselves mm-hmm. even. And it, that's just... It's remarkable. Yeah, you know? it, you're right. Absolutely. I just think you, and I realize this is a very, this is probably not just probably, this is the most extreme case that I can think of or circumstance to ever be in as a person or as a leader or whatever you want to call it. And you only know what you know and you do your best, mm-hmm. you know? I, I, and I talk a lot about our training, uh, mm-hmm. that we've gone through, but, uh, do we ever train? Okay, in this scenario, you're, you know, a couple beers in with your wife <laughs> at a concert. Like that is never a scenario you train for, right? So, uh, adding that to the mix is just something, you know, like, and likely maybe where I went wrong was I just went too far into the work mode, not enough into assessing the specific situation that I'm in yeah. right now instead of just going straight into, but how would you know? I mean, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. It's, um, uh, you might be able to, to answer that question because you, you've hit your extreme. You I know? felt, I felt like I said before, like I'm responsible for making, for being absolutely robotic. Perfect. That night. Like I had, I felt like I was, capable and had enough and proper training to be that perfect. And, uh, I wish I had done a couple things differently. There's nothing I could do about it now. Um, I am proud of some of the things that I did and people I was able to help. Uh, I love those people that, uh, I mean, that's like a lifelong bond. I hope I'll be able to continue, uh, catching up and sharing stories with, I'm meeting the, uh, man that was shot in the leg. We're meeting up this next month for dinner. He's come back into town and really looking forward to that stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's just, how could you possibly just, and and, I mean, uh, some of the smartest people I work with, right. They're the ones thinking of these training. They're the ones thinking of this, all these drills and, you know, they didn't even think of something like that. Like that's not something anyone has ever prepared for. Same with nine 11. I mean, we do, you, you can only train for what you know might happen and when you're put in a situation that, that you can't even fathom, you know, you just kind of react. Yeah. And uh, what's your advice to somebody? And this could be somebody in an, in an extreme situation or just you're a leader, you're in a situation, um, and you really don't know what to do. What would, what would your advice, where do you, where would you say they start? Um, I always feel like the, the thing you're always lacking the most in emergencies is, uh, in the first, I mean, we're talking the first 30 seconds is information. Uh, any scenario you can bring up route 91 to your uh, house fire, right? Like, okay, smoke alarms are going off. Where 
in the world is this happening in my house? Who else is home with me today? Do I have any other people in the house? Are my dogs with me? Are my all that stuff, right? Uh, gathering information quickly and uh, logically is paramount in my opinion. And my, my, we just talked about it with my wife and I. Like, she's like, I want you to put me through some kind of drill just to make sure I know that I can get the kids out and whatever. And I'm like, you'd be fine. Like you can, you, you will figure it out. My wife is, I, we half joke, but she is way smarter than I am. So I'm like, if I can do it, like you will have no problem. Um, so uh, my advice is, uh, the th- I feel like what helped me the most was staying calm in as best you can and gathering as much information, uh, off of that because too often, uh, it's very easy to make, uh, judgments and to make decisions, uh, without the full picture, right? Like you don't, you just don't know, right? You don't know. It may not be the best idea to open your door to go down the hallway. It might be a better idea to go out the window and then in through another window to get your kids out, right? Because it's, that's the scenario you're in. So, and it's probably, I mean, anybody that was there that night, it's like, Oh yeah, good advice. Stay calm. Like (laughs) screw you. That was impossible. And, and my emotions um, are taking over. Yeah, and, I yeah. get it. I get it. Like everyone who's everyone has been there at some point in their life. I feel like we've all had uh, an emergency where you were. I wasn't in control. I, I've, it's happened to me. My, I watched my dog get hit by a car once, and I was terrified at how I reacted because I wasn't in control. Like <laughs> my wife was like, "Hey, I'm calling the vet. Go to this one. I send you the directions right now. Start heading to the freeway." And I remember thinking like, man, I always thought like if there was something ever happened, like I'd be the guy, the calm person. I would be able to like really, and I wasn't. Like, I think that's a good point to make. You think you are this person mm-hmm. um, and you think you know how you're going to react in a situation, but you really don't till you're there. Right. Yeah. You know, and you know, your advice is to just stay, stay as calm as you can. That information gathering is key. Paramount. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do the best you can. What do you do with your emotions in that situation? Uh, I, I, if you can, right. Right. I really think that that is just, uh, train. My captain did a phenomenal job at putting us in stressful scenarios or in just training, uh, making scenarios stressful so that we had to overcome that in the middle of, you know, this drill or hurdle or whatever. So, you know, we'd be doing, (laughs) we'd be like searching and next thing we know, there'd be like, like, deafening chainsaws coming out of like some speakers he had placed throughout somewhere, you know, you're like, what the heck <laughs> or whatever. So, um, but you know, it's, it's, it's impossible for people to practice for every single scenario. And, uh, I think as long as you just do the best job that you can do, um, you can't beat yourself up yeah. for it. That's another thing I've, I've learned about this. I'm sure it's not an easy lesson because <laughs> yeah. you still have to feel, I mean, you're still going to go through. The oh, I still, and, yeah. yeah. I mean, I say this now and you know, it's, it hasn't been very long where I've had the same conversation. And it's gone differently where, uh, it, like anytime we I think about some of these people, uh, that had passed that night, it's hard to not think like, where were you? How, how come I didn't get to you? How come I, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it can be tricky. Um, but there's, I was super, super fortunate to have like people I really love and respect in my life that I could reach out to. And, um, that weren't my wife. Like, I think that was something important to both of us that, uh, 
I can say all this to my wife. She's still healing and struggling also. Right. And I, there's some things like I just didn't want to dump on her at the time because I'm like, this isn't fair. Uh, probably I can't speak for her, but I'd imagine probably vice versa. You know, she sees me struggling and whatever. And I, I was, I go back, that was another difference between her and I stories. I go back to work with, uh, you know, the other five guys that were at the event. They're at my station. They're at my house. So I'm with other five other people. I live with them a third of my life who went through their own thing and I can vent and talk to them. Um, she goes back to work where you know, there was one other girl in her office that was there and no one else gets it. Like, and then we say it like, you just don't get it unless you were there. You can't, you know, you don't know. Um, so I had such an unfair advantage with this whole healing process. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a good point too, is, um, you know, regardless of the situation it, you do, you have to talk about it. You know, we talked earlier about, uh, a typical day for you at work and you're out there, you're doing your best. You're always going to learn lessons. You're, you're never going to be perfect, but it's important to bring that information back in or, you know, talk about it and, um, you know, do your best to, to handle whatever the aftermath might look like, Yeah, you know, and yeah. not to hold it in. And yeah, you're absolutely, I also, we have people coming in, uh, I mean, weeks after this, days after this, there is an onslaught of people coming in to thank us, dropping off thank you cards, waters, donuts, coffee, everything you can imagine, and how good that has to feel, right? But that doesn't happen with everyone else that's at the concert. There's a, you know, if, if there's only 2,000 veterans and off-duty cops and firemen there, uh, there's 20,000 other people that are going to work the next day where that's not happening yet. Yeah. Like the community is not coming out and saying, I'm so sorry you had to see that and deal with that and, or whatever. Um, so I, I was just completely at like the most unfair advantage and definitely didn't appreciate that until months later either. Uh, all the uh, avenues I had at my disposal, like boom, immediately day one, that was, I had everything. I had everything I wanted day one. And I didn't even have to ask for it a lot of the times. It was just, hey, you're coming here. You're doing this. You need to start talking. You need to start handling this out, you know. Um, and I didn't want any of that stuff. I am a believer in that, right? And I didn't want it at the time. Yeah. Um, and not everybody had that. Everybody, A lot of people had to go to work on Monday, you know, or the next Monday. And they go to work with an office full of people that don't get it. They couldn't even, um, you know, fathom that night. And like you mentioned, life goes on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nothing that's, I mean, the, my crew, you know, they get, they're off, they get off. I think they got released from that call at like four o'clock in the morning and there's a car fire at five 30 in the morning. Yeah. Like there's still, the world is still spinning. People still have emergencies. You still have a job to do. You still owe everyone your best when you show up. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, even at home, like I'm still a husband, I'm still a father. I still have these things. And, it was a dark couple of weeks there, you know, for a little bit. I wasn't good at being the two most important jobs in my life, being a husband and being a father. I was not good at that for a little while. I'm very thankful that I have a wife and kids that were there to understand and kind of give me a lot of leeway uh, when I wasn't performing to the bar that I needed to. Yeah, and something that did stand out um to me, at least in this story is, um, you realize too, that you, you can't, you, you can't be a hundred percent all the time. And, you know, you, you also, you know, seeked out help. 
That's and, yeah. Uh, that's that's like a tough lesson. For, yeah. I mean, I say it all the time. It's tough. It's one thing to say. It's a thing to believe, right? So, uh, I'm on the I'm on a, the peer support team, right, for my uh, department, and we go out when there's bad calls. Uh, a lot of times, it's uh, with kids or something. Whenever there's a really terrible call, we go out and we do like a little like informal debriefing with the crew. And uh, really, it's there just to kind of start getting the ball rolling and getting people talking. Uh, so I'm I'm a part of that. I'm in the training. I am the guy that's going out to the stations that's telling you, hey, you need to start talking. Who who, who it is, it doesn't matter. It's got to be your wife, your priest, your counselor, whoever. Someone. Someone's got to listen, though, right? Yeah. And uh, I that was the last thing I wanted to do. I was so sick and tired of crying. The last thing I wanted to do is talk about it where I know I'm going to cry some more. And um. I like I, I had like a couple of people I trusted, you know, till the end of the earth and was able, was f- comfortable with feeling, you know, whatever I was going to feel in front of them. Uh, and, uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm now today. I'm very grateful for what I had post incident and I wish I knew it at the time. I just, you know, I just didn't. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much for sharing your story today, Travis. Thanks for everything that you do for the community in Las Vegas. Thanks for having me, Cree. I really appreciate it. This is a good time. Thanks, Travis. Yeah. If you or anyone you know is struggling today or any day, we want you to know that you are not alone. For immediate support for any reason and at any time with zero judgment, call the Suicide Hotline at one 800 Two seven three eight two five five. There are also various support groups, including Route ninety one strong, which can be found by visiting route ninety one strong dot org. Take care of yourself and take care of one another. We'll see you again next week.